Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Welcome, listeners. I hope your day is going brilliant or your night is beaming with the unique and strange. Just like today's story. What if you could live in a huge forest, away from the city, away from the hustle and bustle, and tough it out in a world without the law? What if you were rich beyond compare, and had enough money to buy you anything you want, and research anything you want? Which would you pick? Hold that thought till the end of the story, as today's story raises that question and explores the narrative in that space. So, I bring you today, The Forest by Chris Bird. So turn off the lights, turn up the sound, and get ready for something different. I have seen the ice sheets in the Antarctic, and the sand dunes in the Sahara. I saw the curve of the world as I floated in zero gravity, and I felt the crushing weight of the sea 400 feet beneath the waves as I explored unknown wrecks. Three ex-wives, eight recognized children, and none of them deserve the fortune I have accumulated. And yet eagerly they wait, because they've heard the rumors. I hear the whispers in the halls beneath my office, murmurs of cancer. The bad kind. The type of cancer that you don't survive. It's true, non-small cell lung cancer is the biggest killer in the USA. And I just found out that I've got it. When I was 20 years old, my father got me working for him in our family grocery shop, Walkers and Sons. He was ecstatic. The shop was started by my grandfather and bared the family name. And my father was ready to hand me the lead. In a single day, I saw a demand that we could barely supply, and as I flipped the door sign to close, I asked my father why he'd never bothered to expand. This shop isn't about the money, he stated, hunched over a dustpan and brush. Pop built this store with his own hands, so that he could support and raise a family. Money can buy you a lot of things, but it won't buy you happiness. It won't buy you love, and it can't buy you a good heart. He stood up and arced his back, clearly in pain. Seven years later, when the 25th Walker and Sun supermarket opened, I was on my yacht with a group of entrepreneurs and philanthropists that had become my friends. I had proved my father wrong for the first time. When I was in my mid-thirties, supermarkets were just a small drop in an ocean of investments, startups, and ventures, I was one of the super rich, the top 1% of the top 1%. By that time, I could promise you that there was at least one item in any room, almost anywhere in the USA, that my companies had some part of manufacturing, designing, or constructing. That's when I met Hannah and found a love with a price that would prove my father wrong a second time. I nearly lost myself back then. Hannah spent her time looking after my first two children, while I got high on whatever I could get my hands on, 
Meanwhile, the money kept us together. She was happy as long as she had a credit card without a limit. Thousands were spent on designer shoes and clothes. Tens of thousands were spent on nannies. Eventually, even the money couldn't replace what she really needed. A loving husband. She cost me millions of dollars in settlements. And I can guarantee you, she isn't seeing another cent from me. I won't bother going into my other ex-wives or children. Let's just say that it was a mistake to marry. And a mistake to breed. I could never keep my eye away from a pretty young thing. It was in the haze of my thirties that, unbeknownst to me, I would give myself this incredible opportunity. I didn't really care at the time. To me, I remember seeing it as a chance to play God, and that's something I was never going to turn down. At this point in my life, it was rare for me to have a day of sobriety, and when I did get past the hangover, I wasn't of much use to anyone. The letter had been sat on my desk for a couple of weeks before I got around to opening it. It had managed to stay at the top of the pile because the man that had delivered it to me had been stubborn enough to insist it was to be hand-delivered by him. He waited outside for nearly five hours. When he was finally sent up to see me, he simply handed me the letter and left. The contents described a project unlike anything I'd ever heard of. It asked for a hefty amount of money just to begin, and then an annual sum to cover the cost of staffing and research and development. I couldn't give it to them fast enough. I secured myself a line with the head of operations, Mark Yang, and told him I was always on the other line. Mark purchased a vast amount of lush forest land in an area I won't disclose under his own name with an account funded by me. He created a wall around the perimeter and hired 24-hour surveillance. Not a single spot in or around the forest was unseen at any time. With that, a tree canopy thick enough to avoid any potential satellites snooping on us. We were safe. A building large enough to be a small town was constructed. It had a food mall, a hairdresser, a small hospital, staff living quarters, and everything the workers would need in their new home, for however long their contract was for. Mark's plan could never have come to fruition without me, so I owned him. Between ourselves, we called it the forest. In public, we didn't talk about it at all. No one did. The staff were looked after as long as they didn't ask any questions. We tried our best to keep the section separate, and in general, everyone was happy to keep their knowledge to themselves. Our first step was to buy the orphans. We purchased 25 healthy baby boys and girls from different orphanages of different ethnicities and countries. We raised them without language, without education, without love. Once they could walk, they were taken from the nursery and placed in the nest. The nest was designed to introduce the subjects to the world. It was a simple three-walled room with a ceiling to keep them dry, and a small outside area enclosed by a simple chain-link fence to keep away any animals. There was nothing in the nest except for grass and mud. We didn't clothe the subjects or give them beds. Mark wanted to know what a real human was like. Each morning and night, a siren would wail. From a hatch in one of the walls, we would drop cooked meats. As the children grew older, they began to fight for the food. Scratching, pushing, and pulling at hair. Nothing 
was against the rules when food was involved. Once they were five, male subject six wandered up to the fence and put his face against the wire. His body was already marked with scars and bruised from that day's fight. Without much hesitation, he clambered up the wireframe and dropped down the other side. From that moment, the subjects were free to roam the forest. As puberty set in, the forest became a difficult place for the girls, and consequently the boys. Under the circumstances, it was difficult to say if consensuality was something we could ever consider. These were humans, but they did not have a language beyond grunts and shouts. They did not have law that permitted or denied certain acts. Everything was natural. This was the first time we saw something that divided the pack. Suddenly, the boys were no longer happy in each other's company. With sex came ownership, and with ownership came an unwillingness to share. The biggest of the boys were also the first to hit puberty. Male subjects 1 and 12 each took control of a large proportion of the girls. Left over was the majority of the boys and a couple of immature girls, who unfortunately suffered for the next few months until they were allowed into one of the tribes. Food became a battle between the men. Three male subjects were killed in as many months, and another simply died from starvation. However, when male subject 7 reached the brink of hunger, he warily approached the tribe of male subject 1. On his knees, the nearly man crawled up towards the clan resting beneath a large tree. Subject 1 was alert, watching with wide eyes as he approached. As the boy got even closer, Subject 1 stood and marched over. The girls were getting restless. The boy stopped moving and shielded his face with his hands, peering through the cracks in his fingers. In a moment where the choice was violence or sympathy, this was the first time a subject had been shown sympathy. Subject 1 nuzzled the boy away with his foot, pushing him from the group. Seven was too weak to even crawl away and fell to his side. He died the following day. It was during this time, when the feral children were nearly 15, that I decided to enter the forest. Mark had argued with me furiously, right up until I'd told him I'd pull the plug on the funding to his project if he didn't let me in. He let me join the group with a scowl, and insisted I was as accurate in mimicking their conditions as possible. In his words, they should have no reason to believe I hadn't been living there for my entire life. And so, Mark Yang watched as his 40-something billionaire investor took to the forest, stark naked and eager to begin. I sauntered up to Twelve's tribe, with my hands swinging by my sides. The boy shot up to me, screaming and hollering in my face, trying to push me away from the girls. I'd seen him do this to the other boys, and usually it worked. I tackled him to the ground, and punched him until he was spitting blood and barely moving. Dominance was key. The tribe became mine, and I took seven girls from the boy I left wheezing on the grass. He stumbled away from us, back towards the other boys that had been confined to their own company in recent times. My girls were beautiful. They were young, fit, athletic, and the sex was incredible. It was so primal and instinctive. I honestly never had such insatiable urges. Not even the drugs compared to it. Quite frankly, I'd never been happier 
Over the course of a few weeks, I gave them names that suited their faces. I learned each of their quirks. I stood ground against any of the boys that tried to take my throne. I got in fights to win my tribe our food, and I never spoke a word. I was only planning on spending a couple of days in the forest, but I stayed for four months. Once I finally left the forest, I never really managed to fit back into the real world. My mind kept drifting back to my girls. My third wife was nothing compared to them. My kids were screw-ups, my business all but ran themselves, and the world outside of the confines of that forest were lackluster and meaningless. When Mark gave me the call nearly five months later, I felt a happiness I hadn't felt since I was in the forest. Three of my girls were showing signs of pregnancy. Three. I gave my wife whatever she needed in order to have her sign for a divorce and flew to the forest. I watched them on the cameras. They were beautiful. Flawless, even. Twelve had reclaimed the group, and I felt rage building inside me as I saw him lay with my girls. I nearly threw up when I saw him sleeping with them. Two heads nestled into his neck. It should have been me. It should always have been me. I stormed back into the forest with fire in my eyes. The boy was alerted to my presence by the frightened noise the girls made as they scampered behind the trees for cover. I would never hurt them. Twelve was a bit bigger than we last met, but not by much. Not by enough. I think I broke one of his arms because he ran off into the forest, whimpering with it, held to his chest. I took no time asserting my dominance with the girls. It was good to be back. The world was perfect again. Two of the children survived. Mark and I agreed that more food was needed to be dropped to feed the increasing population. The other tribe also had two babies and it was important for us all that our girls were getting enough to live. Male Subject 1 and I had come to an amicable, unspoken agreement that we would each take half of the food that was dropped. The other boys scavenged what we left behind. Every six months, I had a checkup with the doctor in the building attached to the nest, and after a few years, I stopped talking altogether. My companies continued to profit, my children did not care for me, or I for them. And I truly needed nothing more in the world. Today, I had my biannual checkup with the doctor. I've been living in the forest continuously for 17 years. The sound of the city drives me crazy. All of the engines and horns and shouting and bright lights all through the day combine with the foul air and make my head spin. The screen on this computer is hurting my eyes and it takes me forever to find the right key. Mark is still watching me every day. He says he might join me next year when he retires. The doctor flew in a specialist who confirmed the cancer in my lung and was told not to ask any questions. What's funny is that, even now, I had the chance to prove my father wrong for a third and final time. My father said money can't buy a good heart, but it can buy a good lung from a willing donor. The truth is, my sons have begun to best me in the forest. I do not have much time left with my girls before a new king heads the pride. If I do get a transplant, I must either go back to the real world or live out my days shunned from my own tribe, which I cannot bear to do. I'm sorry, Mark, 
but it looks like you'll be going in alone. I've seen the ice sheets in the Antarctic and the sand dunes in the Sahara. I saw the curve of the world as I floated in zero gravity, and I felt the crushing weight of the sea 400 feet beneath the waves as I explored unknown wrecks. Three ex-wives, eight recognized children, and none of them deserve the fortune I have accumulated. But 13 girls, 15 children, and 9 grandchildren, along with an entire forest of people, true people, deserve every cent I have ever earned and ever will earn. When I die, all of my savings and subsequent earnings will go directly to the forest, to provide space to expand and grow. Thanks for the ride. What a brilliant story. What would you pick? The forest with no rules, and a real chance of death, or the city with insane riches, but in the confines of a concrete jungle, to some? Now, the answer to you, listener, and listeners, might not be so easy for some. I know for sure that some of you out there are saying, most definitely, the forest. And others would argue that, most definitely, the city. <laughs> it's stories like these that really provide good food for thought. So thank you Chris Bird for sharing this awesome story with us. Now, if you have some spare time on your hands and haven't had a chance to leave a review yet, it would be great if you could. Why? Because it helps authors like Chris Bird reach more people and expose his writings to more listeners around the world. So leaving an iTunes review, for example, expands the podcast reach and as a result helps authors reach even more people. A huge thank you, by the way, to all of you who already have left a review. You won't believe how much you're helping. Cheers, mates. So stick with me tomorrow for another story and thank you for joining me today. You can reach me at any time via email, storiesfablesghostlytales at gmail.com for any of your own stories and recommendations. Have yourself a creepy-licious day and devilish night. And as always, till next time.